Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com app to download. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with three big stories that demonstrate President Biden, well, Bidening. Returning to his foreign and domestic policy wheelhouse after a tough first year as president, in which his priorities reflected a very different politician from the one that many of us have come to know. First, we have one of the most significant counterterrorism operations of his presidency to date, an overnight U.S. military raid in Syria that led to the death of the leader of ISIS, who detonated a bomb inside of a building that killed himself and members of his family rather than be taken alive. After the raid, President Biden issued this morning. Last night's operation took a major terrorist leader off the battlefield, and it sent a strong message to terrorists around the world. We will come after you and find you. We also saw today Biden Bidening on the domestic front, arriving in New York to discuss gun violence with Mayor Eric Adams, a former police captain who has described himself politically as a kind of Brooklyn Biden. It was a very symbolic meeting down to its location at NYPD headquarters. The answer is not to defund the police. It's to give you the tools, the training, the funding to be partners, to be protectors. We're going to provide funding for cities and states to put more police officers in the places we need them. It was a meeting of like minds on gun crime. Two Democratic executive leaders who rejected the defund the police movement while pledging to address criminal justice and police reforms while on the campaign trail. Let's face it, this is a comfortable place for Joe Biden, a fundamentally centrist politician who helped write the controversial 1994 crime bill. Lately, Biden is spending time tackling issues that he spent his entire career covering. You can see that, too, in his approach with Russian President Vladimir Putin, which brings us to the third story, the ongoing diplomatic challenge with Russia and where the former chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee has sought to exert a careful balance of authority and diplomacy. There will be enormous consequences if he were to go in and invade, as he could, the entire country, or a lot less than that as well, for Russia, not only in terms of economic consequences and political consequences, but it will be enormous consequences worldwide. It was a big day for Biden. A day that also put into sharp focus where the president's comfort level lies. A return to those 90s era tough on crime policies, national security issues, and vowing to hunt down the terrorists, gun reform, and further funding the police, while more progressive issues like police reform, universal pre-K, and college loan forgiveness remain on ice. Boxed out by Democrats who are to Biden's right and are essentially forcing him to stay there in that space in what has been his political comfort zone. This is Biden operating in the country and in the world right now. And in the end, this is who Joseph Robinette Biden is. Joining me now, Christina Greer, Associate Professor of Political Science at Fordham University, David Rothkopf, columnist for The Daily Beast and host of the Deep State Radio podcast, and Mike Memoli, NBC News White House correspondent uh, and, and what we call the Biden whisperer, because you've been covering Joe Biden for a very, very long time. And I just want to dig into that a little bit with you, Mike, because I feel like this is vintage Biden today. All of these, form, these foreign and domestic policy issues and successes, these feel to me like vintage Biden things. Uh, is that it? Would you would you read it that? Way. Yeah, Joy, you really set this uh, up very well in terms of the 
all the challenges that are coming together for Joe Biden at once and how he's dealing with them. And I think the common refrain throughout each that you've talked about is balance. You see it today when he's dealing with law enforcement. He's been trying to sort of offer a model to Democrats about how to balance being, you know, tough on crime. Crime is going to be a big issue in the midterm elections, especially if Republicans have their say, but also to do what he did, which is surround himself with law enforcement at NYPD headquarters, but then go to Queens, go to a public school where they're trying to deal with some of the root causes, uh, community intervention programs, rehabilitation for formerly incarcerated individuals. Now, certainly in the campaign in 2020, when he was running in a very crowded primary, one of the things that Joe Biden considered one of his biggest accomplishments the crime bill was used against him, and it caused him yep. to, to sort of move a bit uh, into the criminal justice reform category. George Floyd, for sure, had him turn the knob a little bit more. But he knows that the uh, midterm elections are going to be won and lost in suburban districts where this fear of crime is going to be parallel. So he was happy to join arms with Mayor Eric Adams, who won also a crowded Democratic primary with tough enforcement. When you look at now the foreign policy challenges he's facing, he had to make a very tough decision on a raid in Syria today, whether to do a drone strike or to go in with special forces. He made the calculated risk, especially because of the potential cost to civilians to go in with special forces, ultimately a successful one. He saw President Obama go through that. And then I think the most interesting one is Russia. Biden is somebody who has always operated based on personal relationships. He tried to build a personal relationship with Vladimir Putin in Geneva this summer, but it's been interesting as he's been navigating this crisis. He says he doesn't even think Putin's own closest advisors know what he's doing. So he's been trying to operate based on the force of our alliances, the relationships he has and doesn't have with our European allies to try to find the right path forward. And increasingly, that's been preparing for a military option, uh, though he's exhausted all the diplomatic ones. Interesting. That's really interesting. I, I want to bring you in here, David Rothkopf. You wrote, you wrote a lengthy thread um, that a lot of people have read and retweeted and, and quote tweeted today about Biden's sort of foreign policy, you know, successes or, or, you know, the way he's conducting foreign policy as somebody who really understands it. I mean, one of the key selling points of Biden as a as a commander in chief, we don't talk a lot about foreign policy, unfortunately, in these debates, you know, in the presidential debates, it usually comes down to personality stuff, you know, but he's always touted his own foreign policy acumen, right? That's important. And he kind of knows. And so, you know, between just putting his foot down and saying, we're getting out of Afghanistan, come what may, and taking the heat for the way that that ended. But then even being willing and sort of understanding Putin and dealing with him in a way that does seem to be backing Putin down. Um, and this, you know, and sort of learning a little bit, right? Not doing the drone strike, which is a really big issue and a really moral issue, right? And doing it another way that winds up getting the same results. So some learning, some moving a little bit, but really sort of vintage Biden stuff. Uh, to talk about a little bit what you make of the way these particularly foreign policy issues are playing out for him this week. I think you summed it up really well. Uh, you know, I, you, in recent memory, the president who had the most foreign policy experience was George H.W. Bush. Joe Biden has three times as much foreign policy experience as George H.W. Bush had coming in. He's been doing foreign policy at a fairly high level for half a century. And it shows it matters. Uh, uh, he is handling an extremely complicated situation uh, with uh, Russia and Ukraine uh, extremely well, talking to all of the allies, uh, maintaining NATO cohesion, which is not easy. It's like herding cats sometimes, uh, uh, and standing tough. He is being tougher with Putin on the threat of invasion of Ukraine than George Bush was with Georgia, than Barack Obama was with Crimea. Certainly, Donald Trump was, uh, who cozied up to Putin in every possible way. And, and I think you, you make a really important point here. 
you know, with regard to the uh, Syria action, he's sending a message. We're still engaged. We're still going to go after terrorists. We've got the number one and two guy in ISIS in this. And we learned from our experience. And I think the final point I would make is not only is Biden hitting his stride, Biden's team is hitting their stride because you can't handle Russia, Ukraine, Syria, Iran negotiations, rebuilding or or actually building for the first time a security structure in the Asia Pacific without a big team and all cylinders firing. And that's where we are right now. Right. And and, I, and, and, to, and it's, it's sort of reminding people, I think, of sort of the competency. Um, you know, th- this was one of the big selling points. That this is a guy who's got a core competency at some very specific things, particularly on foreign policy. And I think he's demonstrating that. Um, but also that he can learn because the, doing a drone strike, I think, would have been a, you know, at least for his base, would have been a disaster. I want to bring you in here, Christina, because I, I do feel like Eric Adams is, is in a very similar lane. You know, he sort of nicknamed himself kind of the Biden from Brooklyn. And I think that's true. And, and you have a great piece in The New York Times that talks about Eric Adams and the kind of politician he is, which is very similar to the kind of politician Biden is, right? It's somebody who has had to appeal to a base that is, you know, largely African-American, which tends, at least at the younger end, to be to the left of where he is, but also with older Democrats who, you know, people may not like it, but the sort of the sort of middle through line of Democratic politics are these somewhat older voters consistent voters, black and white, but who are much more centrist than the progressives that are coming up and that are really sort of taking over the party in a big way nationally, ideologically. That ain't Eric Adams. He's not a progressive, but he's still, I don't know, talk about how he's navigating that. Well, and both of them, Joy, are navigating this in a calcified white power structure as well. And so you have a base of the Democratic Party, which is African-Americans, both on a national level and in New York. But we also know that there are several shades of blue within the Democratic Party. And so as we talk about defunding the police, which is something that is very you know, attractive to progressive voters, they may be a loud faction, but they're not the largest faction. We know that in New York and across the country, there are a lot of people who support police officers, not just in uniform, but as, as civilians who rely on police departments for their sources of employment and or unions. And so this idea that you would be take money away from uh, that very large paramilitary organization is not something that's attractive to people on an economic level, but it's also a both and that I think Biden and Adams and several other black mayors across the country are trying to grapple with. We want safe streets. We also don't want our children picked up for nothing and harassed and stopped and frisked. And so there has to be a middle ground because we've seen it in other communities. Other communities are able to be safe without harassment and abuse. And so why can't we figure out uh, the same sort of uh, policy perspectives in a lot of black communities and Latino communities. And so the the idea that Biden came to New York to start a, a long-term conversation, not just with Eric Adams, but also with Governor Hochul. And so this is going to have to be a local, state, and national conversation if we're going to get under uh, the, sort of the threat of violence, whether real or perceived. But also it has to be in conjunction with community efforts. It has to be in conjunction with more money for education and housing and rebuilding the social social safety net that Democrats like to do. And then Republicans come into power and rip it up. And then Democrats have to come back and rebuild it. It is the it is the it is the circle of life. 
<laughs> in politics. I want to bring you back in here for a second, um, uh, Mike, because, you know, the working class Joe model of Joe Biden, right? It, it, I think it bleeds over into all of this because, you know, a lot of people forget that, you know, one of the last working class pension jobs are the police, right? A, a cop. Mm-hmm. And so the police are, are more racially diverse than people tend to sort of look at, right? There are more Eric Adamses than you might think in the department. And this is working class voters. And so Biden's sort of attempt to appeal to the working class. I think you, we can get into this with David Rothkopf as well, but I want to start with you on this because the military, again, you know, there are, there's an officer class, but there's a working class part of it too. So Biden seems to be like sort of narrow casting a lot of what he's doing to a certain kind of working class voter and, you know, who might be mad at him when he tries to do things that are progressive, that are really super popular with the majority of the country, but that he can't even get past because of people like Manchin. You know, I've been covering President Biden now a long time, and he used a line today, which I've heard him use so often, which is he grew up in a neighborhood where everyone either went to become a firefighter, a cop or a priest. And as he often then delivers the punchline, I wasn't qualified to do any one of those things. But this is exactly right. So many of the kind of uh, one of the reasons he's had such a tight relationship with law enforcement throughout his career is because he relates so much to those uh, as people he grew up with and who are working class and who want their what their wants and needs are are much more complex than what we often give them credit for. Joy, I want to sort of offer this note, which is two years ago tonight, do you remember what it was? The Iowa caucuses. Doesn't it seem like Mm. a lifetime away? That was 137 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) And remember what happened that night. We don't really know who won, but we know that now President Biden lost. He came in fifth. And part of the argument that Biden advisors were making at the time was that you all are paying too much attention to progressive voices on Twitter, to the loud uh, parts of the uh, constituency of the Democratic Party uh, that are much more liberal than even where most of the Democratic Party is, let alone where most of the country is. And they placed their bets on the kind of both uh, heavily black populations in states like South Carolina that also are, by the way, like Wilmington, Delaware, but also the suburban communities like Newcastle County. That was the formula for Joe Biden to win every statewide election he ran for running for Senate uh, in Delaware, which, by the way, is blue state now, but it was very much a purple and even red state for the 70s and 80s. And that's the, the Biden demographic that he tries to make all of his policy choices through those lenses, African-American voters and suburban voters. And I think that's what you see him as he's Starting, set of, setting the table for Democrats in a midterm election year, kitchen table economic issues and being on the right side of law enforcement and crime issues as well. And that's where the midterm elections are going to be won and lost, suburban districts yeah. as well. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that, they, that, you know, including this black voter, the Jim Clyburn type voter, exactly. you know, they're more, they're still, that's still part of the base of the party. So if there's a big argument here about what we need to do on things like police reform, because there are serious changes that need to be made, but don't count on him going out on a limb for any of that stuff uh, right now that Biden is Bidening right now. I want to note that th- today would have been Bo Biden, his son's 53rd birthday. Um, he died in 2015 at the age of 46. So we should acknowledge that, that this has been a, a difficult day in a lot of ways for Joe Biden. because He's also a very emotional st- guy. So uh, all of that is part of what Biden is. Uh, Christina Greer, David Rothkopf, and uh, Mike Memoli, probably the most expert voice on Joe Biden that there is. Thank you for joining us tonight. Up next on The Readout, Rudy Giuliani is a key player in a plot to overturn the presidential election. So why would a major TV network treat him like a lovable celebrity and put him on a game show? Also, if Missouri lawmakers get their way, the McCloskeys, remember them, could have killed every single protester who walked by their house and likely faced zero, no legal repercussions. That is seriously messed up. And tonight's absolute worst are basically cartoon characters, but not from the future like the Jetsons. These guys are more like the Flintstones. The readout continues after this.
Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Okay, filed under, I cannot believe I'm reporting this to you tonight on the news, but Deadline is reporting that two judges walked off the set of The Masked Singer last week after Rudy Giuliani was revealed as one of the masked characters. This is the same show that forced its viewers to watch Sarah Palin singing Baby Got Back in a bear costume. Again, cannot believe that this has to be said on TV. But this does appear to be a new low for the show. While Rudolph Giuliani's clown show personality might fit perfectly with a campy singing competition, it's actually a lot more serious than that. Because while it may have been funny and fun to mock him for his national hair dye incident or for accidentally booking Four Seasons Landscaping instead of the real thing, he was doing all of that while leading Orange Julius Caesar's effort to essentially stage a coup, starting by spearheading the pressure campaign to get Ukraine to investigate Biden, something Giuliani is still under investigation for. After the election, he embarked on a media tour shilling fake election fraud, which he's shown zero remorse for, no matter how embarrassing it's been for him personally. He even said in a court deposition that he didn't have the time and that it's not his job to check to see if everything he was saying was true. And we've learned recently that he carried out multiple insidious plots with the former president directing him to ask the Department of Homeland Security if it would if it could legally take control of voting machines in key swing states. He also led the effort to get seven states to put forward fake electors, which we're learning even more about now that The New York Times has obtained two new memos that Giuliani used in that scheme. They detail the beginning of the Trump campaign strategy to overturn the election arguing that their real deadline was not December 14th, when official electors would be chosen to reflect the outcome in each state, but January 6th, when Congress would meet to certify the results. With me now, Kurt Bardella, advisor to the DNC and the DCCC. And, you know, Kurt, Rudy Giuliani is ridiculous, okay? I mean, there's there's this um, sort of notorious video, which I guess we could show. Let's just show it. This is him uh, playing around um, and goofing around with Donald Trump back in the year 2000. And this was his mayor inner circle press roast. I guess we can show a little bit of that. So, I mean, he, he is a, he, he is a foolish man that does foolish stuff with other foolish people like Trump. But that idiocy to me, it kind of, it kind of overtakes what is seriously um, dangerous about him, both when he was mayor and was like sending the police out to stalk black people. um, And now that he is Trump's legal Eagle, your thoughts. 
Well, Joe, I think that this speaks to a much broader problem that we have right now just with our culture and with the role that people who have platforms, who have programs, shows, networks, their role and responsibility to the public at large, when you normalize someone who was one of the architects of what turned out to be a domestic terrorist attack on the United States Capitol on January 6th, when you normalize someone who was helping swing the wrecking ball to try to destroy democracy as we know it, that is a very dangerous precedent to, to face. This, is, this isn't just like Joe Rogan and Spotify. Joe Rogan, who's never held a public office, who's never been in a government job, who hasn't advised any elected officials and, and certainly not presidents. This is a guy, Rudy Giuliani, who sat shotgun to the president of the United States as he tried to overturn a free and fair election, helped him carry out his henchman, his number one person. And you try to normalize that? By giving him a, sh a, a, you know, a spot on a game show where he's going to look like a fool, where people are going to laugh at him, we're going to see him as more of an entertainment figure than what he is, a dangerous person who acted traitorously towards the United States of America. Yeah, I mean, let me let me just play a little bit. This is Rudy Giuliani and his uh, his unraveling conspiracy theories after the election. Just a little bit of that. Take a look. The call for Joe Biden isn't is it? Who was it called by? All the, oh my goodness, all the networks. Wow. All the networks. We have to forget about the law. Judges don't count. This is real. It is not made up. It is not, there's nobody here that engages in fantasies. If we're wrong, we will be made fools of. But if we're right, a lot of them will go to jail. So let's have trial by combat. And that was on January 6th, shortly before uh, the goons uh, invaded the Capitol with a noose to hang the vice president of the United States. I mean, and I think you make a really good point, Kurt, because, you know, this is a sinister figure, not a not a person that should be normalized in a game show type television show. And, and I guess that's why, you know, the, the, those two celebrity judges walked off, um, because this is somebody who engaged in a very serious criminal conspiracy to steal an election. It's really shocking, I guess, but not surprising that he's still treated like he's just some normal guy that you can book to sing songs. It is, it is outrageous. Your thoughts. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 again, I have to applaud, first of all, you know, Robin Thicke and Ken Jong for, for reacting the way that they did, which I think is the only way any decent human being would react to that type of revelation. And, and certainly they should be furious at the producers of the show, at the network who, who allows this to happen, that, that someone like this is given this type of position. I mean, I liken it to imagine if after 9-11, some, some game show gave a position to one of the architects of that terrorist attack. To me, yeah. what happened on January 6th is on par with that. It's that severe. It's that dangerous. In fact, it's even more dangerous when you look at the erosion of democracy that right now that these forces led by Trump and Rudy Giuliani are still trying to perpetrate on our country right now. It's not like they stopped, that they went away, that there was a hiatus. This is an active and ongoing effort on their part that they've never relented on. And you're going to reward that? with a platform, yeah. with exposure, with recasting him as a cartoon character, someone that shouldn't be worried about, he doesn't deserve that. 
Yeah. And you, you know, the QAnon shaman is going to get on Dancing with the Stars, like when he gets out of prison. Like, I mean, it's it just it, this is kind of what's happening in terms of normalizing the unnormalizable, including people, as you said, who literally acted against our democratic interests. Uh, and I think the other issue that I that, you know, I'd love you to get into a little bit. I mean, this guy's still under investigation. Like he, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not even sure how it's possible for him to be able to do this stuff, uh, and to do these sort of fun time things when he's, he's still got to answer for the things that he might have done that were illegal. Yeah, I mean, I think that there needs to be, you know, a bit of a colonoscopy here on how the hell did this happen in the first place, Joy? Like, you know, who made the decision? Who greenlit it? Who thought that, that, that putting entertainment value above our democracy was a good trade to make? Because that's really what's happened here. And I'm just so sick of seeing these type of figures from the Trump world, this, you know, okay, we're going to give them this plug. We're going to get exposure for our show. We're going to make money off of this. And to hell with democracy, to hell with the rest of us. It doesn't matter. And then they try to act like they're not responsible for the type of wrath that they're going to bring upon all of us. When you do this, when you green light something like this, you are responsible for what happens after and you are part and complicit in that person's actions. You are endorsing that person when you give them that type of spot. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, and one wonders if the, you know, when the January 6th commission starts doing its live hearings, whether that is going to get the same kind of network exposure, you know, for us to find out what happened that nearly happened to our democracy. Um, and, and let me go back to the Democrats here, because this is, you know, the, the January 6th commission has a job that it has to do. But I, I'm also wondering if Democrats are communicating what you just said properly, because you had Joe Biden go out and call Mitch McConnell, his friend. And, you know, it is a Biden-y thing to do to be Mr. Bipartisan. But sort of I, I wonder if if that alarm that you're communicating is being properly communicated from the top in the Democratic Party. Well, I think that is. I look at someone like Jamie Harrison, the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, who I think has a very clear-eyed vision of what this Republican Party is capable of, having run against Lindsey Graham, of all people, who's mm. kind of the poster child for the depravity of the Republican Party. Having someone like Jamie in this position who has the ear of the White House, who, who has the ear of the president, who understands better than anybody firsthand what it's like to go up against this party. And I'll tell you, Joy, we've seen recently Republicans thumping their chest at the idea of being in power and hauling up Hunter Biden for, for investigations and hmm. doing all kinds of committee hearings targeting the Biden family. I think that the president is well aware now that of all the people who have the most to lose by Republicans regaining power, it's him and his family. Yeah, I hope he is. Uh, and, and I hope he doesn't think Mitch McConnell would be there for him if that happens. Uh, Kurt Bardella, thank you very much. Really appreciate you, man. Up next. Okay, are you ready for this? A new conservative proposal that's being dubbed the Make Murder Legal Act tries to redefine what it means to murder someone. And who do you think could potentially benefit from this proposal? Hint, it is exactly who you think it is. We'll be right back. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. It's Monday night. 
It's Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. This is one of the most offensive pieces of legislation I have ever seen in my life. Um, it's, it's a personal attack on me. It's a personal attack on people who look like me. Um, I try to think of words to describe it, and the only word I can come up in my mind is this bill is complete bull****. Well said. Kyle Rittenhouse, Travis McMichael, George Zimmerman, all three men claimed self-defense during their trials for the murder of innocent people, many of them black men, or in Zimmerman's case, a teenager. A new bill being debated in Missouri would not only call those murders justified, but would prohibit police from even detaining those suspected of violence, as long as they claim self-defense. What's being dubbed by opponents as the Make Murder Legal Act would strengthen existing self-defense laws in the state by putting the burden of proof on prosecutors to disprove self-defense claims. Something very difficult to do in cases where the only witness to a heinous crime could be the person who was killed. Joining me now is Brittany Packnett Cunningham, host of the Undistracted podcast and an MSNBC legal analyst. And Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor and an MSNBC legal analyst. Let me read. uh, Thank you both for being here. Let me read a little bit of this law. This is a provision of this new proposed law, which um, perhaps appropriately is bill number 666. A person who uses or threatens to use force is justified in such conduct and is immune from criminal prosecution and civil action for the use or threatened use of such force unless this person against whom force was used or threatened is a law enforcement officer who was acting in the performance of his or her official duties and the officer identified himself or herself. So you can theoretically kill an undercover police officer too if they don't identify themselves, but police are excused. Uh, as expected, Mark McCloskey, who's running for the open uh, Missouri Senate seat, praised the bill because it means that he is essentially, and his wife could have been in their slippers and shoot every single Black Lives Matter person that walked by legally, and they, they would not even be detained. I want to go to you first on this, Brittany. As somebody who, you know, has, has, has been out there in the streets protesting, taking that risk with, uh, for yourself, what would this kind of a law mean to people who actually just want to march for justice? And what does it mean in your view, um, particularly for Black Missourians? Joy, I'm so glad you reminded us that the McCloskeys were front row and center to testify on behalf of passing this bill. This was, of course, the couple that was made famous by stepping outside of their restricted covenant mansion in St. Louis, Glocks in tow, pulling their guns out on unarmed Black protesters. But of course, to people like the McCloskeys, Black skin is weapon enough, and this is precisely the problem. This is exactly what this bill is designed to do. It's to legitimize seeing blackness as a weapon in and of itself and then justify our murders. It is meant to terrorize us and frighten us away from ever using our voices. I also want to set the proper historical context because back in the day, by 1950, Missouri had the second highest number of lynchings outside of the Deep South. So when folks talk about making America great again, that's the kind of Missouri grand old tradition that they want to return to. They want to return to days when you could lynch or murder black folks and there would be absolutely no retribution for it. That's not hyperbole. I'm telling you as a black Missourian and as a protester, that is reality. 
And I, I, I can't get around that. I mean, that, that, it, this is Fugitive Slave Act territory. I'm sorry, Paul. This is essentially legalizing lynching, as Brittany said. I, I don't see how it's anything under that. They cu- and couple that with trying to neuter and castrate the feds. Here's another piece of this. New York Times uh, reports, in 2021, Missouri passed a law that prevents local law enforcement from even working with federal agents on gun cases and imposes a $50,000 penalty, penalty on any local sheriff's office or police department that tries to enforce federal firearms laws instead of abiding by less restrictive state statutes. So what they're saying is local law enforcement can't even talk to the feds about gun crimes, but you can shoot and kill anyone you like and just say up self-defense and you're good. Yeah, this is like a stand your ground law on steroids and it's like a gun rights for nuts law on steroids. It would allow murderers to go free and empower trigger happy vigilantes like the McClowski's and like Kyle Rittenhouse, to shoot up Black Lives Matter's protests. Under this law, Joy, anyone who kills in self-defense is presumed to have acted lawfully, except if you use self-defense against a police officer, then you still go to jail. Uh, What a clear demonstration of who this law protects and who it does not protect. So, Joy, I agree with you. The only right thing about this proposed law is its title, Bill 666. It advances the devil's work. I mean, it is it, it is a it is a, a, a lynch law. Even police um, are, are are not enthusiastic about it, Brittany. Because yes, you can you you can be arrested if you shoot a police officer, but that's only if they're self-identified and if they identify they're a police officer. So again, if you're an undercover uh, officer in Missouri, be aware that you can get shot too. But but to set that aside for a moment, you know, I wonder if you could just tease out a little bit more for us about Missouri, because you started something that I would love for you to continue. Missouri is thought of as not the South, but this is a state that has a lot of, had a lot of Active clan activity after the Civil War. This is not a state that is not not the South. You know what I mean? It is so similar, you know, sort of, you know, culturally. And I wonder just what for black Missourians, what does it mean to live in a state like that now? Joy, you're absolutely right. There is a reason why for the Ferguson uprising is part of what shocked the world uh, over six years ago because of the kinds of things that had been an undercurrent for hundreds of years in Missouri. Missouri was a state that legally enslaved people. You had to cross the Mississippi River into the free territory of Illinois. This was a state where that same state legislature back in the day made it illegal to teach black children how to read and write whether they were enslaved or free. This is a place where right across the river, the massacre of East St. Louis um, absolutely uh, trounced a a nearly all black town and and saw a number of black people murdered. This is a place where the continual terror of black people and of marginalized people even continues to be celebrated today with things like the Veiled Prophet Society, because the Veiled Prophet was created to actually intimidate black and white laborers who were fighting for uh, justice and equal pay. And that is a society that still lasts today and has deeply racist roots. So these kinds of things are often not spoken about in a place like Missouri um, until the last few years, which, like we've seen across the entire country, we've seen folks stop being polite and, as they say, start getting real about their racism. Missouri, unfortunately, has been at the vanguard of that. And I'll bet you they're going to quickly make it illegal to teach any of what you just said in schools, because, you know, that's the other trend, too, is to hide the past. And, Paul, you know, on this while we're talking about this, it is not just Missouri. Um, Let's go to the officer, uh, Jason Van Dyke 
who killed Laquan McDonald uh, in Chicago to go to another state in the Midwest. Um, he's, he's free. He left prison. He served less than half of his sentence. He is a free man as of today. Um, you were on this very air on this very, uh, in this very hour covering that. Um, I wonder what you think of that. What such a brief, brief time in prison for having killed a teenager. So, Joy, when judges sentence people, they're thinking about retribution, the idea that punishment should fit the crime, and deterrence, the idea that the sentence should send a message to anyone else that if you do this crime, you will do the time. Three years for second-degree murder doesn't satisfy any of those objectives. Chicago's Mayor Rahm Emanuel failed Laquan McDonald. Chicago's then-head prosecutor failed Laquan McDonald. Chicago's then-police chief failed Laquan McDonald. If there's any good news is that they're all now out of office because of their dereliction of duty, but the criminal legal system is still failing Laquan McDonald. Yeah, everything old is new again in American history, which is why we need to know American history, whether Republicans want us to or not. Brittany Packnett Cunningham, thank you. Paul Butler, thank you both very much. Up next, tonight's absolute worst wants you to be a macho, macho man. Stay right there. In the conservative manosphere these days, there is no shortage of whining about the lack of macho men in our country now that their bully in chief is gone. Like conservative sports writer Jason Whitlock's archaic nonsense about women leaders in his discussion with Duckham's Carlson. I probably am a sexist pig, so I could care less if I'm called that. But the patriarchy is a good thing. It's, it's, it's what God intended. Uh, men are supposed to lead. I'm sorry if that paints me as a sexist pig, but it's what I believe. Well, that's just an, I mean, that's just an epithet designed to make you be quiet. I think it's safe to say that Jason can remove probably from that sentence. But any this fixation on making politics more manly isn't new. It goes all the way back to the 80s shtick about Democrats being the mommy party and Republicans being the daddy party. But most recently, a cadre of Trumpists have turned the conservative obsession with masculinity into a full-on rallying cry. Like amateur Hitler enthusiast and tree-prunching insurrection goober Madison Cawthorn, who's claimed that society is trying to demasculate men and called on parents to raise monster men. Do monster men punch dead trees? Asking for some friends that are trees. Or fake MAGA hedge funder J.D. Vance endorsing vigilante violence by praising Kyle Rittenhouse for showing basic manly virtue. Uh, I can't. And who can forget Missouri receding chin Senator J Josh Hawley, who has made defending masculinity, as he sees it, his entire M.O. He gave a speech arguing that after being told that manhood is the problem, it's, it's driving men to pornography and video games. Sir! Me thinks you thought you doth protest too much. He later doubled down, accusing Democrats of telling men that masculinity is inherently problematic. But by blaming it all on video games and porn, Holly, the fist pumping insurrection enthusiast, is just using the cheat code to exploit white male grievance already unlocked by Trump LaRange with his faux tough guy shtick. The same kind of macho cosplaying that Holly was egging on on January 6th. Meanwhile, last night, old Tuckums, who, let's just face it, is the literal avatar of the manly man. OK, I'm just joking. He's, he's literally the opposite. Seemed to take it all to heart, arguing that strong leaders, the kind without any maternal instinct, he says, are under attack. 
Creative masculine energy is the essential quality in any civilization. It's how we got civilization in the first place. But increasingly, boisterous masculinity is systematically suppressed to make way for a timid caretaker class. For people who think the whole point of society is to get to zero COVID infections or eliminate all traffic deaths. Yes, yes, baby man Tuckums. Not giving a crap about your fellow humans and making sure the government leaves them to suffer and die turns you into the Incredible Hulk. Can I stop rolling my eyes now like they're starting to hurt? And so the warped conservative obsession with their own version of masculinity is, well, it's tonight's absolute worst. So what does this politicization of male fragility mean for our country? And that is up next. Stay with us. We all witnessed the biggest example of conservative wannabe macho men in action on January 6th when the mob fueled by grievance and lies laid siege to our U.S. Capitol. In fact, of those arrested for their involvement in the attack, more than 85% were men. And if you're wondering where they got such a stupid, dangerous idea. If you see somebody getting ready to throw a tomato, knock the crap out of them, would you? Seriously. Okay. Just knock the hell I promise you, I will pay for the legal fees, I promise. In the good old days, this doesn't happen because they used to treat them very, very rough. And when they protested once, you know, they would not do it again so easily. Any guy that can do a body slam, he's my kind of... You'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. Joining me now is Kristen Dumais, author of Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Ms. Dumais. But, and I think it is ironic that the person that I'm showing leading into talking with you is Donald Trump. But weirdly enough, Trump has become particularly white conservative evangelicals you know, that's their guy. Like they 80% voted for him. They are devoted to him. They are his base. Please explain what this sort of weird conception of, of masculinity is doing inside of the evangelical world. Yeah, on the surface, it seems like a contradiction. These are family values evangelicals who are uh, Trump's stalwart supporters, and they purport to follow the Jesus of the Gospels, a Jesus who is a suffering servant, who commands his followers to turn the other cheek, to love their enemies, and to love their neighbors. And yet, they are his uh, strongest supporters. They constitute his dependable base. And that's because if you look back, you can see how within conservative white evangelicalism, they have over time embraced a kind of warrior masculinity as their ideal of Christian manhood. Somebody who is rugged, who is tough, who will protect Christianity, protect Christian America, and frankly, do what needs to be done. Yeah, it's like a crusades version of Christianity rather than the, I think they would despise actual historical Jesus because they would have thought he was being too soft. They would, you know, and, and turn the turn the other cheek stuff they would find ridiculous. Um, you know, Jeff Charlotte d described this as sort of wanting a wolf king of saying that they want somebody who's rude, crude and horrible because he's, as you said, going to be like a warrior for the faith. Like, right? They believe that Jesus favors strong men who build his kingdom and forget about piety. That's the way he kind of described it. it but I wonder 
Is it really just a very fancy religious cover for men who just don't want to help their wives with the baby and really just want women to shut up and make them a sandwich? And they're trying to sort of cloak it in religiosity. But really, at the end of the day, they just don't want to change diapers. They just want to march around and do like cosplay like they're in the, like they're in a war. Well, that, that may be a factor for some uh, men who are embracing this. Uh, I, I do hear the sandwich joke, uh, not so much a joke in certain evangelical spaces, but, uh, you know, it is also their faith. And what you can see is in uh, the last several decades, Christian publishers have published book upon book championing this kind of uh, rugged Christian manhood. And yes, they they look more to heroes, Hollywood heroes like Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart as their ideal Christian man more than they look to Jesus Christ. And so this has been cultivated in religious spaces. It has been part of, uh, it's been preached from pulpits, and it has really um, kind of moved to the heart of evangelical identity for a pretty sizable swath of conservative evangelicals. Yeah. Can we just show Madison Cawthorn? This is Madison Cawthorn. I just have to show this. I find it funny. I mean, this is a guy who was like, I visited Hitler's bungalow and it's like my dream come true. He's punching a dead tree. This is ridiculous. It's funny. It's laughable to watch him do this. It's, this is a joke, but I mean, but there is this sense of like, I need to do violence to something. I need to like, you know, Donald Trump Jr. goes and hunts beautiful creatures in Africa and just sits on them as if that is somehow masculine. It is perverse. Uh, but, but I wonder if there is a counter sort of veiling trend anywhere in the faith that is talking about a different kind of masculinity that is about caring for people, that is about doing the right thing. Because I always thought, you know, manliness really is about being responsible, of being, you know, a good person. Where is that in the masculinity conversation? There is certainly that conversation going on. There has been alongside this, and particularly in the 1990s when we had the Promise Keepers movement and a lot of talk Mm -hmm. about servant leadership and a kinder, gentler version of patriarchy. Uh, But that really started to get shoved aside by the end of the 1990s. And then September 11, 2001, really um, uh, brought to the fore this warrior masculinity because when things got tough, You didn't want the kinder, gentler manhood. You needed uh, a a guy who would go into the trenches. You needed a firefighter who's going to rescue people. Yeah. And, and I think you can be both. I mean, firefighters go in and rescue people because they, they give a damn about human beings, right? They're, they're actually brave Absolutely. and selfless, but they're not like, they're not being jerks. They're, they're actually being selfless. Uh, can you talk just very briefly? This is about w- white masculinity. Cause this ain't about, I mean, Jason Whitlock thinks he's in the t- on the team, <laughs> but this is really about white evangelical masculinity, not everybody getting the same deal. Yes, yes. And you can see going back in time that uh, this particularly militant conception of what it is to be a Christian man emerged in the 1960s and 1970s in reaction to the feminist movement, in reaction to the anti-war movement, but also in part in reaction to the civil rights movement. 100%. And in all three of those cases, uh, white patriarchal authority could kind of set the world back in order. Yeah. And by the way, that, 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 you know, shoot a man down lynching law in Missouri, that's coming from that same space as well. Kristen Dumay, thank you so much. That is tonight's readout. 
MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.